We have our weekly update in just a moment. A reminder that Monday is Yom HaShoah. Monday is Holocaust Remembrance Day. We'll have appropriate programming all through the morning between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time during JM and AM. Make sure to be tuned in and uh, encourage uh, the youngsters out there and all the people in your community to listen in and be part of a Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day observance. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be back with you and good to have you back away from home, but here at home. How did the uh, Passover holiday go in California? In San Diego went very nicely, thank God. And uh, made it. Great Sadarm made it through the whole week. That's eight through the whole week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying there were things that were being done in excess at your program, just like some other Pesach programs? You've heard about it. <laughs> heard about it, experienced it, and sometimes don't know how I survived it. <laughs> anyway, uh, the next journey, let's just talk for a second before we get There's so much to talk about over the last couple of weeks, obviously, in the news. But just for a moment, let's concentrate on the next big journey, and that's, of course, happening on the 24th of May, Yom Yerushalayim, this time around, is going to be number 50, the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. Obviously, obviously, you'd encourage people to get a trip to Israel on the calendar no matter when, but there's something extra special about going there just a few weeks from now. Uh, how about a word about how important it'll be and how fun and inspirational it'll be to be in Jerusalem for the big number 50? Well, this is only going to occur once in most people's lifetime to be at a 50th anniversary. The 100th anniversary is a long way off. And uh, I think this year especially, as Jerusalem has been the focus of so much attention at the U.N., at UNESCO, at the, even in Congress and the administration, it's a great opportunity to show our solidarity with Jerusalem, our appreciation of the reunification of Yerushalayim, of, of what occurred not only 50 years ago, but what occurred every day and every hour, every minute, that we have Yerushalayim uh, as it is, that we not take it for granted, that the world sees we are committed to it and filling the streets when it will be wonderful, wonderful events uh, for the public and, and uh, all sorts of celebrations uh, during those days. I think everybody will want to be part of it. It's something you will tell you and bring your grandchildren so they can tell their grandchildren. Yeah, it's going to be something I'll remind everybody uh, from our standpoint. You want to uh, get in touch with our friends at Mizrahi, Mizrahi.org slash YY50, Mizrahi.org slash YY50. Again, the, it is now April 21st, and I begin. The, I believe that journey actually begins on May the 21st. So limited time to get going to make those plans and to uh, pivot directly from Pesach to the next big celebration. I mean, we have others as well, including Yom Atzmut, but you know what I mean, the next big one in Jerusalem, which is Yom Yerushalayim. Uh, by the way, speaking of Jerusalem, someone mentioned this to me the other day. I was just curious uh, your thoughts about it. We keep talking about the President of the United States and the possibility of one day soon, hopefully, the embassy, United States embassy, being in Jerusalem. Is, 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 is there, in, in fact, a procedure with a waiver that normally is signed or has been normally signed by past President of the United States that if President Trump does not sign it, automatically that embassy move would take place? Yes, it, it means that the, the the law that was passed in 1995, which I was proud to play a very important role in because uh, we partnered with Senator Moynihan in the initiation, but many others, Senator Lieberman included, who helped uh, get it through the leadership of both houses 
of the Senate uh, and, and uh, Congress uh, joined, and we had this amazing ceremony in the rotunda, the last such event in the rotunda, and nothing like it since. Uh, and even Prime Minister Rabin came for it. The uh, law, uh, in order to get across the board support, built in a presidential waiver, which is common uh, so as not to be seen as usurping presidential prerogative. And every president, uh, even those who endorse the principles of the of the legislation, and certainly in campaigns, everyone does, uh, exercised their right to waive it for six months at a time, meaning the next waiver comes up in in a few weeks. And if uh, President Trump uh, decides not to, to, to waive it, it will have an impact, meaning things like the question of uh, issuing passports for people who are born in Jerusalem and putting down Jerusalem, Israel, I think would, would come into effect. There will be many other um, uh, implications, I think, for it. Uh, it doesn't change the status of Jerusalem, right. but it will, I think, um, it, yeah. it, it'll certainly enable uh, uh, positions that we all have advocated to be yeah, the, uh, the, advanced. The, the person who mentioned this to me was sort of suggesting, because it is, uh, as we might say Talmudically, a Sheval Tasse procedure, that the president does not have to actively do anything, that that right. might encourage him to, in fact, you know, ignore the waiver and, and not sign. Do you think that that, in fact... You know, would give him more of an impetus, or if he decides to do it, no matter what it takes, he'll just do it. I don't know. I mean, there are all sorts of reports that are circulating. One that that he has told uh, Abbas that if he that he uh, would waive it if he ends the practice of paying terrorists. Uh, so then you get into the dilemma about the trade-offs and and questions. But I don't know that it's true. I just saying that it's one right. of the reports. So I don't know what is going into this because, you know, he wants to have a summit this summer. If he feels it would be an impediment, then he might decide that uh, it would be better to to waive it for six more months and see if they deliver on it. Perhaps if after the Abbas visit he sees there's no progress, he may just say, you know, this is something that I'm going to do, or actually, as you said, something I'm not going to do. Right. So it's, it's premature to say it. Uh, uh, I think those you know who anticipated the move happening right away, and others, it's, it clearly hasn't, and it's a, it's not a simple thing to do, as simple as a lot of people thought initially. Malcolm, Homeline with us, weekly update. Uh, you, you would like to remind the New York Times about what aspect of Marwan Barghouti's bio? That he's a murderer, that he's a multiple murderer, that he's serving uh, multiple life sentences, that uh, this is not you know, a political activist, but a terrorist. And uh, the, the, he was involved in, in some of the most horrific attacks, including the murder of children. And that the, the giving him space on an op-ed page in any event, I think, is, is uh, outrageous. But to do so without properly identifying him and giving credence to this, this is really, and he, you know, he's leading a hunger strike now which involves uh, many prisoners in uh, Israeli jails, not all, far from all. Uh, in fact, lesser support than I think people anticipated, both in the streets and in the prisons. This is a political ploy. on his. It's a challenge to the leadership of Abbas. He wants to be re-recognized. His standing has uh, diminished somewhat. He was. He's often been the most popular personality as a terrorist amongst the, uh, um, the population. 
uh, he, he's, he will be in jail for life, and therefore his, the idea of him being a candidate, maybe you know, he'll get elected in jail. It's happened before, but he can't serve. The, um, uh, so for him, this is a, a political maneuver to, to challenge uh, Abbas. Abbas, I understand quietly, is, is fighting against the, uh, the hunger strike and doesn't want to do anything that will enhance the status of, of uh, Barghouti now. And the New York Times played into his hand, became a, a tool for him. Yeah, Frank, uh, what do you think of the correction, by the way? Sufficient or not? Insufficient. Wow. Better than nothing, but yeah, insufficient. Cause, cause Frank, but it does not really make the case. First of all, the damage is done once something like right. this is published, reproduced around the world. Right. Corrections hardly get noticed. And uh, the, But the mindset that, that allows for that really should be questioned. Yeah, no question about that. All right, a lot of elections going on around the world. A lot of up, lot of updates necessary. First of all, in France, it seems for the first round of elections is coming Sunday. That things are very, very tight. What could you tell us about what's happening there? That if, if this is the first round, there will be follow up rounds. The uh, I think the the killings yesterday in Paris are going to have an impact on this election. Uh, it may help Le Pen. Uh, I think the comments of some of the candidates that this is something we have to live with will not sit well with the French people, and I'm sure they will amend that. The um, I think 230 people have been killed in in, in France since January of 2015 in terrorist attacks. In fact, in Marseille, they prevented what could have been a very bad attack because they found a stockpile of weapons, of grenades, of explosives, in, and apprehended, uh, I think, two people, both of whom they say were radicalized. And it's a reflection of the of the broader problem that France and Europe face with the return of ISIS fighters, with those influenced by ISIS, the Internet uh, recruitment and uh, other means of recruitment that uh, is taking place, and they don't have the manpower to to adequately monitor all of those whom they suspect or who they are concerned about or should be concerned about, and the the you know this is going to be reflected in the in voters being concerned about their security. It is something you hear about more and more in, in Europe. I think Le Pen was um, her numbers were going down somewhat, uh, but this could well. Uh, boost them up. All right, since you mentioned ISIS, before we go on to the next election question, let me ask you about uh, the U.S. attack in Afghanistan, uh, a, a very significant one militarily, one that certainly got the attention of the entire world, and the media uh, certainly um, uh, continued to, uh, uh, I don't want to say overplay it, but but continued to stress uh, just how powerful uh, a, a, a an attack this was. First of all, do, do we know how effective it was? Do we know if, in fact, it accomplished the goal in terms of what the U.S. wanted to do it regarding ISIS troops. Well, the first thing, in terms of sending a message, I think it was a very loud one. <laughs> then you could hear it for in, in, for a great distance. Second, it says America is willing to use the weapons and that our generals are authorized to, to take this kind of action, that they didn't need presidential approval. I think they, how much damage it did on the ground, they're not reporting, they're not saying how many people were killed or how many were were taken out or how many tunnels uh, or there are caves in that area. The question is, did they collapse? Did they make them uninhabitable? Did it drive the uh, you know, forces out into the open? So I, I don't know the answer to that. We haven't, they have say they're not going to disclose uh, that information. But I think the message that it sent 
is is a strong one, just like the missiles in in uh, Syria, etc. These these things send an, a message, and America is back in the game. America, um, you know, will respond to these uh, things. I, I'm sure it will be challenged by people, but the message is. Uh, to the region is an important one. And we had an opportunity to discuss Russian reaction and attitude toward what happened with the U.S. in Syria. Uh, what could you tell us about how Russia reacted to this, to the U.S. action in Afghanistan? Well, obviously, they, they weren't happy about the uh, this demonstration of force. Uh, Russia has a long history there with the Taliban. And, you know, the Taliban are being aided by Iran now, according to reports that um, have been in the press. And they um, uh, and the increasing tone, by the way, of comments about Iran has been very important. Hey, Nikki Haley yesterday, General Mattis, Ambassador Haley uh, to the United Nations, uh, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, talking about their activities in various areas, including with the Houthis, and that they're providing more aid in Syria against Hezbollah. Were mentioned by them, uh, in, and of course, what's what's uh, going on regarding the, uh, the Taliban. So the, the message to everybody, I mean, was heard. And right now, U.S.-Russian relations are, uh, to say the least, strained. Right. And uh, how that manifests itself, we don't know. In in you know, in the future, uh, the meeting between uh, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary of State Tillerson, and Foreign Minister Lavrov did not seem to. Um, reset the relationship, but uh, public expressions of uh, concern, etc., um, criticism even, uh, that this is uh, obviously has implications regarding Syria, regarding Iran, regarding Turkey, regarding the region, and on um, a, a broader scale. That might even include North Korea. Yeah, not to overstate, yeah, we'll get to North Korea in a minute, not to overstate the obvious, but the, the actions that we witnessed, especially this one in Afghanistan, likely would never have been taken by the previous administration. Safe to say? Well, they did not take it. What they would have done in this circumstance, I don't know if there was particular information, but the fact is that, uh, as I've heard from many leaders in the region, they feel America is re-engaging, and um, that was not the case uh, in their assessment about what was happening in the past. And the reports that Russia has been flying fighter jets relatively close to um uh, to Alaska, you know, close to the border of international airspace. I mean, I, I have to assume that, that 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 does not normally happen. They are asserting themselves, and we're going to see more of it. And Putin um, takes the pride issue very seriously. I, I again, we're seeing it not just there, but in many areas where Russia is being more overt and and uh, aggressive, and that includes. The reports about what they're doing in, inside Iran in establishing a, a base and some a base of operation, the form, the bases they have in Tartus and Latakia in Syria, in Libya, and reports of other uh, potential places. So, uh, Iran, Russia is um, is exert, asserting itself. In, um, in many ways, and certainly in, in the FSU areas. America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is with us. We are live on a Friday. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations as we discuss 
the weekly update. All right, you mentioned Korea. You know, it's hard to believe that it's only 14 days ago that we last spoke about the news of the week. Because in addition to everything we just mentioned, uh, you had this uh, major uh, encounter with, uh, I guess we could say with the U.S. and Korea, right? Obviously, it was Korea and other nations as well. Uh, some type of standoff as Korea try, as, as, as North Korea tried to exhibit and remind the world about their nuclear capabilities and, in general, their military strength. Uh, I mean, we actually went into one of the weekends of Yontif. I, I, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but people were saying, wow, I wonder if there's going to be a nuclear war. And certainly the way the, the media was presenting it, it sounded like it was, in fact, a possibility. How would you evaluate the situation now with North Korea? I did not think there was a possibility of a nuclear war, and I don't think North Korea represents uh, as a direct danger to the U.S. It represents a very serious danger, and, uh, you know, they have missiles which can reach the United States, at least supposedly, and they are looking to advance it and to advance their nuclear program. They are serial proliferators. Uh, To me, the more serious part is that this is a Korea-Iran joint uh, or interrelated uh, operation and that the missile technology, the nuclear technology and advances are are at the least shared. Uh, and the, but the immediate danger is to our allies, to Japan, to South Korea. To they can, it's a very aggressive regime that doesn't seem to care about the interests of the people. The country is uh, extremely poor. The Chinese are the primary uh, responsible party, uh, being both the neighbor and facing an influx of millions of people should the regime collapse so that they don't want to see uh, chaos emerge there. But the, the, the North Koreans are, you know, play brinkmanship and, and engage in the kind of public thing. When you, when you realize that it's a country that doesn't have uh, uh, the economic base of it, they, I don't think that they want a, a sustained war now. Uh, even uh, skirmishes right now that could escalate into something more than that. The, the Japanese, as you know, are very um, sensitive about the issue of Korea and uh, and especially North Korean advances, uh, military advances. So for the U.S., uh, the leadership role that it's taken is is important in putting marker and sending our ships there. But I think that really the Chinese have to be pressured into doing stuff. It goes back to the question of where, what role Russia will play, given the other issues. And they have limited capacity. Russia doesn't have the, also the economic fortitude to, to, to maintain operations in many places. They have enough power to do what they want and to make uh, the kind of show of force but even in Syria, they, they've made a very limited uh, investment in terms of their own manpower, planes, etc., and made a lot of money from selling weapons. Well, I'm confused a bit on this. So, so whose responsibility is it more, Japan or China, in regard to uh, North Korea? Well, China is on the border, and China represents, I think, 80% or more of the of the imports and trade with uh, North Korea. Uh, North Korea's domestic infrastructure is is very limited. So they have the most direct leverage and stake. Uh, Japan obviously is, is very concerned. South Korea is very concerned about what they do. Uh, and uh, I think it's a combined effort, but it, it should be a world responsibility when you have a rogue regime that has the track record that they do to to determine what is the most effective and, and uh, um, punishing way to deal with it. All right, back to my questions regarding the elections. What exactly has the uh, has, has Prime Minister May in Great Britain called for? What type of election, what type of vote? 
It'll be an election, a parliamentary election, because right now her polls are very strong. And I think in the advance of, uh, you know, the implementation of Brexit, she feels that this is a good opportunity for her to um, hold the election and for her party to do very well. I mean, she's only in power for a, a short amount of time. Well, they learned from Israel. I was just going to say, but I think elections, you know, very healthy for democracy. But I think they beat Israel on this. I don't think Israel's ever had one this quickly, frankly. Well, the average government of Israel lasts not more than two or two and a half years. That's the average over since Israel's creation. So it's uh, yeah, the, the, but this is a, a shorter period. But there are very vital issues that England faces, that she faces. And I think she wants to take advantage of the of the opportunity at this moment. But that that has been true often in in Israel and other countries uh, where it isn't set to be like here four years, uh, but that they can call elections uh, whenever they feel it's appropriate. Sometimes leaders miscalculate on this. Absolutely right, and sometimes they wait too long. Sometimes they don't wait long enough. You know, it's a, it's a judgment call. It can, you never know what backfires. You don't know what happens. You see in the French election, you know, they have a state of emergency now. And the, the heightened concern as a result both of the attack and the potential attack and all of the history of these last years, um, an attack like this one against the police and in such a visible place on Champs-Élysées, that, I think impacts uh, could impact uh, the election. I, I don't think it'll be decided. Obviously, it'll be have to go to another round. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, the Mattis Netanyahu meeting today. How did that go? Very well, and uh, the, and as it's been true for for years, uh, the military and security relationship remains very strong and uh, is being enhanced. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they talked about the common issues, and I assure you that Iran is probably number one. Um, maybe negotiations uh, or potential summits in, 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 in with the Palestinians and others are, could be on the agenda. But I would say that Syria and uh, Iran were, were probably one and two, and of course, the spreading the role of, t- of ISIS and other terrorist entities, especially near the Golan, and, and that Israel's concerned that nothing be done that doesn't protect that area and assure that they'd be kept away. We know that Iran has moved forces in supposedly creating special units that will be, are called Golan units to be used to, to go against the um, uh, against Israel's uh, border, both in Lebanon and in, in, uh, in Syria. But the, you know, the strong statements that we saw from, from uh, General Mattis about uh, that everybody should be looking at at the trouble from Iran and uh, that uh, they're giving more aid to the Houthi to fight the Houthis in Yemen because they're being supported by Iran and what Ambassador Haley said others said about it so that also influences that the US and Israel are on the same side influences the nature of the uh, of the cooperation when we saw Iran put death to Israel on the missiles right. Uh, you know, you don't need a more clear statement of their intent, and people shouldn't just dismiss it as a prank. It is a message, and we should never, you know, let our guard down and, and become complacent and say that Iran can't. Iran can, and Iran wants to. Thank God right now they're not in a position to do it where they, I think if they thought they were, in a, and he's facing an election too, and has to worry about, um, Iran is facing an election, and Rouhani 
is a candidate to be reelected, but Ahmadinejad came in, and I think in some respects it might be good if he got elected because there isn't much difference between them except that he doesn't put on a fancy suit and and doesn't look, you know speak as mo- as modestly as Rouhani and with a smile, but just tells the truth more openly and more brutally. And the world knows when you mention Ahmadinejad exactly what it is, and the others they say, well, they're moderates, they're different than. Uh, but in the end, the policies uh, end up being the same, and they're really dictated by the supreme leader. And the news is that he's disqualified anyway from the race. So, yeah, well, we'll see how if they can disqualify everybody. Generally, the vast majority of the candidates are are dismissed and not allowed because they have this panel that has to review them, and um, and and it's true for the modulus uh, elections as well that uh, thousands of people were eliminated from uh, the possibility to run. You know, the Prime Minister of Israel continues to tell the Israeli public that a war, another war in Gaza, is inevitable? Well, some ministers have said it uh, recently, and the the concern there is that the that Hamas is continuing to build up. You know, there was another tunnel collapse, and the right. guy was killed, and three were injured. Right. But it, it's it's uh, reflective of the fact that they're continuing to build the tunnels. They're continuing to build up their uh, missile capacity. Hamas has actually been more restrained that other groups have been firing missiles uh, uh, because they want to keep the quiet until they feel they're in a position uh, to be able to exercise, you know, their military might, what what, uh, increased capacity they have. Uh, Not because they can defeat Israel, but because they want to kill and they want to maim and they want to capture people and get prisoners out and and to uh, escalate the the situation. The... um, you know, so Hamas uh, continues to to um, uh, act. Iran, Egypt, thank God, continues to act against uh, a, a lot of them, and uh, certainly against the tunnels on their side. And it uh, it's it's a very volatile situation. The, the, the uh, tunnels were being built by Hamas's uh, Al Qassam brigade. So when people say, "Well, it's not Hamas; it's other groups and stuff," it's Hamas. And they can do it through whatever uh, front group they want or whatever um, cover they try to establish. But we know that it's it them, and uh, and they're going to wait till the right opportunity. On the subject of Gaza war, by the way, one of the heartbreaking things I saw in Israel was the uh, address by Hadar Golden's mother to the Knesset. And, I mean, obviously she's, you know, she, she would like the remains of her son returned and the other family as well. Uh, but it's sometimes you, sometimes you forget about the open wounds that remain years later in Israeli society. I, I did not think it was sarcastic nor disingenuine when the prime minister said to her that he thinks of this every single day. I, I don't think it's something uh, that any prime minister, I've heard it from many of them, and Netanyahu, I'm certain. Uh, I will tell you that I think about Goldens frequently. I meet with them when they come here. I saw them in Israel when I was there last. Uh, even just giving personal support is important, but we are also working through other foreign governments and others that have contacts with Hamas who promised us uh, to intervene, and some surprising ones. But the fact is that they came to realize also that didn't help, that these guys were not interested in any kind of a positive action or assertion. Yeah, that I'm sure. Uh, the President of the United States has stated that the um, uh, that the country of Iran is not living up to the spirit of the nuclear deal. 
uh, obviously very significant in terms of uh, you know where it's coming from, from the White House, from our administration. Uh, with this being the case, are we going to see more activity from either Washington, the White House, or Congress uh, in regard to the Iranian deal, to the Iran uh, deal itself? Is there going to be anything that's uh, going to be proposed or passed uh, to adjust the deal or to eliminate certain parts of it? That is the uh, important question that they're wrestling with now because it, it comes up the day before the Iranian election. And uh, the, the question is, do they allow the exemption from the sanctions to, to be renewed? The Iranians say, well, if you don't, then it's over. you're violating the deal and therefore we can violate the deal. I think we can put down markers about that. Uh, targeting uh, sanctions, again, uh, specifically aiming at individuals, businesses, and, and uh, activities related to the missile program, to the nuclear program. I think the declaration is an important one, putting them on notice and perhaps uh, introducing the idea that the U.S. is is not satisfied with the compliance. Uh, some European leaders have, uh, have said it, but they are trying to do business and want to, you know, <laughs> exploit this situation whatever way they can. So I'm not sure how much we would have for it and how far the administration is willing to go. There could be, uh, uh, and Congress is looking at additional sanctions, especially against banking, against uh, certain economic interests. I think that if we could stop the Boeing sale, that would be a, an important um important statement because the the uh, sale is to Asaman Airlines, which is purportedly private, but we know that they were used to fly material personnel to, to Syria. And more than that, the head of it is the former head of the Iran Revolutionary Guard Navy, who made terrible assertions against the, and statements against the United States and threats. Uh, so the idea that this is some sort of a purely civilian operation and won't benefit the, the, the military is certainly uh, subject to a lot of skepticism and, and, uh, and doubts. So the, um, and, and Iran continues to act in so many ways on human rights issues, taking the land from the Ahwaz, uh, Arabs in uh, Khuzestan and to, to, um, uh, in the support of terrorism around the world, constantly on the, on the uprise of threats against Israel that we mentioned. I mean, in every area, they are continuing to violate, as he said, not the letter or the spirit, I think both, and that the, um, the only language that they understand is if, if they see that they're really coming up against uh, a tough stand. And, and one can say that the Iranians will make deals with others, but the fact is that if you can't deal in American dollars and you can't have access to the major market of the world, companies are going to think twice about whether they want to challenge Um, you know, the situation is far more complicated and people too, too often tend to paint it in black and white. And there are Iranian support groups here in the United States that have political access and media, get a lot of media access and really give a distorted picture uh, about it. The, the executions, the uh, terrible uh, situation inside the country hardly ever gets mentioned by them. Yeah. Uh, we see the attitude toward Iran. We just mentioned the president's quote. Uh, Afghanistan, quite obvious. I mean, I should say ISIS more accurately, uh, quite obviously, based on the news of the last few days. Syria, we've discussed. I, I mean, for, for those who thought his foreign policy would be wishy-washy, 
can we can we establish at this point that at least there is some consistency to it? I think certainly you can say there's some consistency. I think we don't know yet. Uh, I don't know if you can project longer term uh, because it's still only 100 days of administration. A lot of positions not filled. There are people holding, but you see them. Uh, uh, Vice President Pence was out. They, they're certainly showing the flag. Uh, Mattis has traveled. Uh, Tillerson has traveled a great deal. Uh, many foreign leaders have been here to meet with the president. So they're certainly proactive uh, on the military sense, and one country you left out is is Turkey right. with the passage of the referendum during the time we were away, which is a massive change and and reinforces his uh, power and his, uh, some say dictatorship, some say consolidation of power. Well, was there fraud in that process or not? Well, according to people, you know, the, the uh, certainly the opposition is saying that there is, and there seems to be a very vocal uh, opposition, and now he wants to hold another, another referendum, which would restore the death penalty, which is, by the way, barred by the EU, so that would kill any chance of there being considered for the EU, and of course the relationship with Europe is, is very strained uh, as it is. So the situation in Turkey is certainly... Uh, continues to be uh, volatile, to, to say the least. Yeah, well, if there's questionable activities regarding the election, <laughs> then why not just have another one, if you wish? Because basically, anything he wants to pass, it seems he'll be able to pass. Well, yes, I, and there are all sorts of reports that when the initial numbers came in, he changed the rules while the election was underway <laughs> on the counting and the, uh, you know, I've heard reports from experts who told me that, the, you know, whole ballot boxes where not a single negative vote was uh, was found and, and there were more votes than people living in the region. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that happens, but... Uh, <laughs> it happens, all right. It can affect the outcome. You, usually it's more detectable in very small regions, but <laughs> somehow in the millions they were able to find that out. Uh, finally, uh, as Yom HaShoah approaches uh, this coming Monday, uh, and with that in mind, and uh, knowing some of the things that have been uh, either by accident, mistakenly, or maybe unadvisably uh, said by members of the White House, if you had a few minutes to sit down with the uh, White House press secretary, Mr. Honline, on uh, these issues of, um, of um, uh, conveying certain parts of history properly, what would you tell him? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that this controversy grew up around the sarin gas and the others. The sarin was actually developed by the Nazis, and it's, it, the, the name is the, are the initials of some of the Nazi scientists that worked on it. So it, 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 it's even more dramatic about it, and certainly the use of, of it, I don't think he intended it to deny the, the fact that gas, I think, you know, people have to be very careful with statements, especially if you're uh, a spokesman for a government. I think it's the most instructive thing is the information that came out, which, as you know, we've discussed on the air for years, that the Allies knew, and there's a new book uh, that's come out detailing this, uh, that um, two years earlier than they had said, or two and a half years earlier, that they knew what was happening, that two million Jews had been killed and that five million Jews were at risk, and they did very little. Anthony Eden, who was the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, um, uh, spoke about this and, and spoke that Hitler, um, you know, uh, minimized some of the, da the, the threat and the... Um, um, the, his often repeated uh, threat to exterminate uh, the Jewish people. I mean, they obviously uh, 
condemned it, and uh, they had already been working on uh, th- this study came out because they were working on war crime indictments, so they understood how bad the situation was, and yet did not take actions that would have reflected uh, that that they really got the message. This and these war crime um, uh, charges. Uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, there seems to be limited information about what actually happened and how they translated what the information that was collected and the preparation of, of potential war crimes, what happened between then and, and the Nuremberg trials. Uh, but it's not only the historical aspect and, and some of the facts that have to be, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, corrected. It, it's also the, the the language that's used uh, at times, uh, not, not referencing a concentration camp, you know, in a proper way, so to speak, and things like that that has uh, really irritated some people. Look, we have to be of concern because there is already Holocaust denial while the last, you know, survivors generation are still around, thank God. And, and, you're, not accu- and, and you're not accusing anybody in the White House of that, obviously. But no, it's not just the White House. I mean, look what's happening on campuses, what's happening on the Internet, the Holocaust denial, that there are governments that engage in it, the Palestinian Authority is engaged in it, others, other Arab countries, other leaders who have tried to minimize the Holocaust and, and certainly the anti-Semitic elements. Uh, I think we see less of it in the in the Arab world. And there are some efforts like the Aladdin Project, which the King of Morocco supported, which engages in Holocaust education. Um, it's a French initiative. There are, are positive signs as well, and, and the fact that it's taught in universities and in schools, but there's certainly a diminishing interest and relevance, and I think, uh, uh, I'm sorry to say, but I think it's even true amongst young Jews, too, that as you become more distant, it becomes a fact of history, not of experience, and not even, and, and that the impact is, is diminished. You know, while the grandparents are alive, well, people could tell the story. Well, they saw people with numbers in their arms in synagogues or their own families. That the information, and the uh, that, and that's why I think that this story coming out again reminds what, what happens when people become indifferent, when they even have information and why we speak up sometimes when we see injustices in the world that you can't just sit by. The, I think Holocaust education and uh, and reaching our, our young people about it is is going to be more important because the memory fades. Uh, excellent point. Might be the most important point as we approach Yom Hashoah I thank you very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Have a great Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM.